Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi. I hope you're having a worthwhile, productive day as we head into the end of the year here. You know, it's a great time to kind of look at what have I done? What do I want to do differently next year? I know I'm certainly doing that. Looking back at this year, you know, I feel like this is kind of a year where I've, um, I hate to admit this, where I feel like I've been kind of a neutral. Now, I've been very busy, but in terms of making progress on the major goals that I had set out, I've not made the kind of progress that I really wanted to. Now, what that tells me is that I got distracted, diverted. Somehow, I spent time doing things that I didn't really rank as being the most important. Now, I know that's uh, something that's easy to get caught up in. I mean, believe me, I'm a living example of that. But it's really helped me take a fresh look at what do I consider important and how can I make sure that I invest the major blocks of my time doing those things rather than just those things that seem to be urgent at the time. Now, this is the old challenge that Stephen Covey talked about in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where we have combinations of things that are important and urgent. Well, it can seem important and urgent when you get an email or when the phone rings or when you're, you get a text message or um, you know, a Twitter feed of some kind. You know, those things can seem to be important and urgent, and all of a sudden, if you aren't careful, those things will eat up 90% of your time. So you have to be sure that you're investing time. I have to be sure that I'm investing time in those things that are important, even if they aren't urgent. I mean, if I'm writing a book, nobody's standing over my shoulder saying, hey, you need to write another book. That's something I have to make myself be disciplined to do, even if it's not urgent today. And the payoff may, in fact, come way down the road. It's not something that has immediate results. But we want to stretch our thinking where we are investing time in those things that do have long-term results, long-term payback. And certainly this is a time for me to be looking at that, you know, and I need to adjust how I'm spending some of my time. And and I'm really doing that. I'm excited about some of the changes I've already made by being so focused and conscious of what the challenge is. I've made some changes that are going to allow me to spend most of my time writing, thinking. And as a matter of fact, I've got it really mapped out. I mean, I'm going to spend 50% of my time creating writing, 30% teaching or sharing. Now, that's going to include things like a podcast, doing interviews, speaking, So with those, I'm at 80%, 80% of my time writing or speaking. And then 20% is going to have to include everything else. And that everything else is the area that's easy to expand if I let it, or it's just business decisions, you know, deciding how many of a particular book we need in inventory. So I'm delegating a lot of those things that have to do with just business so that I can, in fact, focus on what I consider to be the most effective use of my time. But it's something that I have to keep doing. I mean, I've been doing this for years. It's not something that just becomes automatic. It takes a focus to do that. Sometimes people have the assumption that if you're an entrepreneur, if you're working for yourself, that you just kind of get up and just, yeah, just kind of do whatever you decide to do that day. Well, it's going to be hard to really have any significant success. And if you, if you just show up and just do what kind of rises at the top for that day. 
So, you know, I'm my own harshest taskmaster in saying, you know, these are the things that I need to accomplish by these dates. I set my own deadlines, but in doing that, it allows me to produce a lot of content and, you know, get a significant amount of productive work done, which I certainly hope I continue doing for many, many years. Now, a couple of things I want to cover here. Now, you know, this is the time each week where we take 48 minutes to examine the value of our work, to really look at, is what we're doing meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable? Those are all legitimate criteria by which we can measure the work that we're doing. If you're lacking in any of those areas, if it's not meaningful or purposeful, if it's not enjoyable, if it's not profitable, but any of those are red flags. A lot of the questions today deal with those kind of issues. Gee, my work, you know, sucks. It's not enjoyable, but I get a decent paycheck. Should I look for something else? Yeah, in a nanosecond. I mean, you know what my answer is going to be on that. Obviously, yes, do something else. You know, money is never enough compensation for investing our time and energy. Ultimately, there has to be a sense of meaning, purpose that goes beyond just the money. I mean, I'm in the wonderful position of being able to talk to people every day who, I mean, I talk to people who are making $20,000 a year and people who are making $3 million a year. The, the questions, the frustration really is not any different. If there's not a sense of purpose that goes beyond the money, it's just as frustrating for those people making $3 million as it is for those people making $30,000. Uh, trust me, you may think, well, try me, you know, give me $3 million a year and I'll be happy no matter what I'm doing. No, it, it really, the money is only a temporary fix if the work you're doing is not purposeful. So we're going to be looking at that. I'm going to, I want to talk a little bit about how to make yourself someone that people come to for advice. A lot of you are coaches, counselors, leaders, salespeople, entrepreneurs, CEOs, pastors, human resource directors. You know, how do you become a person that people come to for advice? I want to talk about that a little bit. Now, before I do that, I also want to just bring you up to date on this issue of me using taking care of business as the lead in for my show every week. Now, you, you know, you know the song, you, you hear it all the time. There it is. That old Bachman Turner Overdrive song. You love your work. Taking care of business. I mean, I've well, been using that for out. a long time, it's time for 48 and, days uh, for the work and love it. And it's become kind of a trademark for the 48 Days podcast. Now, here's the history of that. When I was on the radio, I used that. I mean, one of the producers pulled that out, and we were using a variety. I mean, we used to use um, Monday, Monday, you know, the mamas and papas can't trust that day. I mean, there's a whole lot of songs that talk about the agony of work. Matter of fact, I just did a blog this week about the history of songs in a 16 ton, and what do you get another day older and deeper in debt? You know, but Dolly Parton's nine to five. You know, this ain't no way to make a living. I mean, there's most songs talk about the agony of work. Now, taking care of business talks about just that. You know, we're going to take care of business. I love that song, and I love the way that it's been identified with my podcast radio show prior to that. But when on the radio, here's the issue when it comes to licensing a song. A lot of you ask me about that. How do you get away with using a song that is actually a you know, regular, licensed, produced, copyrighted song. How do I get away with doing that? Well, on the radio, the radio sta- any radio station pays a fee. They're going to pay an annual fee to ASCAP 
or BMI, one of the licensing organizations that gather fees from any place that plays music publicly. So if you have a Victoria's Secret store and you play music that people hear when they come in, you're going to have to pay an annual licensing fee. When I had a health and fitness center, I paid an annual licensing fee to ASCAP for the right to play that music. Now, it's something that, you know, most business owners resent it, frankly. They think, well, if it's on the radio, it ought to be free. But no, it's just part of the process. That's how artists get paid for producing music, in addition to actually selling CDs. You know, if if Chevy uses Like a Rock in one of their commercials, obviously the people who wrote that song get a lot of money as a return for them being able to use that song in their commercial. So I pay Anybody pays. I paid as a business owner when we had a retail, you know, a place where public people could come in. We paid an annual fee. The radio station pays that fee. So if I have a show on the radio station, it's covered under their licensing umbrella. However, when I moved away from the radio station, having my own podcast, I moved out from under the umbrella of the radio station. So it becomes a new issue. But it's a strange issue. It's an issue that the record companies are still scratching their heads about trying to figure out. Obviously, two months ago, I contacted ASCAP and BMI. I said, this is what I'm doing. I'm using the old Bachman Turner Overdrive song, Taking Care of Business. I use 58 seconds at the beginning of my podcast, 33 seconds at the end. What are the licensing issues there? Now, this is complicated a little bit more by the fact that Nobody pays for the podcast. I'm not producing a product that I sell. It's just out there in cyberspace. It's just a public service. But there still is the fact that I am using that song. ASCAP and BMI said, you know what? This doesn't really relate to our licensing agreement. You need to just settle that with the publisher of the song. All right. Publisher of the song is Sony. They gave me the name of the guy to contact for licensing agreements at Sony. I contacted him, left a a voicemail message, left a voicemail message for about three days, didn't hear anything. I emailed him, contacted him again, finally talked to him. And I have nine pages of interaction with Sony that I've tracked. I wanted to make sure that I was tracking every contact. And I told him exactly what I'm doing. I'm using a short clip at the beginning. Uh, he says, okay, let me check it out. Again, you know, a couple of weeks go by, don't hear anything. Get back with him. He says, well, we're checking with our people in um, LA on that. I'll let you know. Didn't hear anything. I called. I finally called Sony and I said, look, I want to talk to somebody besides this guy. I won't give his name, but this guy that I've been talking to. They said, okay. So I left a message with another guy. And then the first guy got right back to me and he says, hey, I really am working on this. It's just uh, something that we are having a hard time trying to figure out. Now, you would think that this is a really common issue. I mean, how many people out there? There are thousands and thousands of people doing podcasts where they want to have a little music intro, music outro, use music clips in the podcast itself, whatever. I mean, there's a whole lot of that going on. You would think that they would have their kind of uh, systems established at this point for, okay, this is what it's going to cost you boom, 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 this is a monthly fee or whatever. It was very complicated. And we're talking Sony. I mean, one of the biggest company, music companies in the world out there, if not the, 
And we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Again, I just had another, like a two-week delay, no contact. And I finally wrote to him and I said, you know, I know that this may be a too small of an issue. And I talked to some of my music industry friends in the interim who told me, you know, it's just one of those little deals. He said, they said, most of the time we just ignore it, tell them to go ahead, just use it. It's probably just viral marketing for us. And we just don't even have a system to address what you're describing. Again, I'm using 58 seconds of taking care of business, a little clip that I created. It's not the beginning of the song. It's one we kind of stripped out of the middle where they go into the chorus, taking care of business. 58 seconds and then 33 seconds here's what i finally got back sony says would you be okay with a hundred dollars a year i said yes i would be thrilled i would be delighted ecstatic i'm it's wonderful now i I wanted to go through and actually push this issue so i would have some kind of a precedent to share with all of you who ask me about that so that's the deal I'm going to continue using taking care of business and I'm going to pay a hundred dollars a year as a licensing fee, which I think is stellar. I mean, I think that's great to do that. So I said, send me some little kind of an agreement that just shows what we're doing. Boom. I'll send you a check instantly. Let's make this a done deal. So it can be done. Now, uh, the reason I wanted to share this and go into more detail than perhaps is necessary is because it is an issue for so many of you who are doing podcasts. Now, I also use Music Bakery a lot for music and the music that I have on CDs that I resell and all that. I really don't want to stir things up and have a licensing agreement and have to pay royalties every time we sell an audio CD. That I really don't want to do. So on audio of No More Mondays or 48 Days or Turning Passions into Pleasure or Profits or... um, is your job your calling? I mean, all those things. I have music, but I just purchase a little segment. I mean, you can go to musicbakery.com. They have thousands and thousands of things that you can draw from. You pull what you want. And if I want a 30-second clip, it may cost me $20 for that. It's a one-time fee, and then I put it on my CDs, and it's a done deal. I mean, that's just how they're set up, and I think it's a wonderful service to provide. I mean, I've had a lot of people over the years send me things. I mean, Chris Seal from TunePlant has a great company. They do bumper music. They create music to go with commercials. He's sent me some samples that he's created, some wonderful stuff, but it just didn't have that same kind of grab you that taking care of business does because it's so recognizable. You know, I've had, I've had other people as well, and you've heard I've, I've shared some of the things that people send me. This is Alex. Welcome to the 48 Days to the Remember this one? Internet Radio Show with Dan Miller, who, for the next 48 minutes or so, will share his experiences and provide you with advice on how you can add value to your working life and so bring positive changes and a positive impact to other areas of your life as well. So whether you're working for the man or whether you're working for yourself, sit back for the next 48 minutes and let Dan do the work and show you how you can say goodbye to those Monday morning blues. Here on 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller. Now again, I love that. I love the creativity of of Alex to go ahead and do something like that. Uh, And I think over time we could really use that as part of the brand. But... This is like in my writing, I've always used a lot of quotations. So if I have something in there with from John F. Kennedy or from Socrates or Aristotle or Abraham Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin or Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, whoever it happens to be, I mean, there's an instant implied credibility 
by connecting your writing with the writings of somebody who is obviously famous and well-known historical figure. Well, the same thing is true, you know, in podcast. I mean, it carries a lot more weight to have taken care of business than to have something that we just came up on our own or something that was created that nobody ever heard of before. Now, I think over time, you could create that kind of connection to a little musical ditty or some kind of slogan that's put together. Certainly nothing wrong with doing that. And that's the way most most podcast people do, incidentally, to just avoid this issue altogether, just purchase some um, made-up music, and uh, that's perfectly fine to do that. But I wanted just to share the details of what I did there and, and to confirm that you can get this done if, in fact, there is something that you want to use. And you can do it legitimately. You don't have to just try to stay under the radar, hope that nobody ever notices that's what I did not want to do. I didn't want to just continue doing this and then have somebody, you know, come knocking on my door with handcuffs. I'm sure it wouldn't be that uh, dramatic. But you hear about, you know, some of the record companies really going after people that are like sharing files, sharing musical files online. There have been some real dramatic cases where people have been fined astronomical amounts of money because they, in fact, did that. I didn't want any gray area there at all. And I've always said that it's this gray area, but I've been trying and trying and trying to get clarification, and finally I did. 100 bucks. I'm licensing, taking care of business. Hope that's encouraging and clarifying for those of you who are working on similar kind of issues. Well, here's some of the questions that we've got coming up today. How can I get liability insurance for advice that I give? Can I start a real business or am I just creating a job for myself? Great question. Can I get paid for my reading skills? Do I need a job to finance my business? Can a person learn to sell? Or is it something you either have or don't have? Hey, there's some of the questions that I want to blast right into here. Don't forget to um, check out our, the cruise. The cruise idea, you know, now that we're getting closer, is really coming to life. We've got all kinds of people raising their hands and saying, count me in. I want to be part of that. Just added actually added four or five additional people we're going to have as speakers, presenters. We've got three full days at sea on the No More Mondays cruise come up in February. That's going to be February the, what is that, the 12th to the 19th. It covers Valentine's Day, so we're going to do some things specifically related to the romantic day, Valentine's Day, uh, for couples. So we'd love to have you join us as a couple. But in addition to Melinda Schmidt and Alvin Schlaughter and me as speakers, we're also adding Pierce Mars, who you know from the 48 Days community, others like Joel Bogus, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcast guy. He and, his, and Stephanie are going to be joining us and do a presentation. West Connor, pharmacist, health guru is going to be with us. And then um, my friends Dave and Paula Foster. Dave pastors a church here, and he and his wife do a program called Making Marriage Fun. Again, it won't be all focused on marriage, but it'll be focused on a lot of how to blend work and play. And in doing so, I mean, that does integrate our relationships. How do you have successful relationships in addition to a successful business? So check that out and join us for that. Let me just throw in a quick quote here and we'll go right into the questions. This is one that actually is one of mine that I developed over the years. Success is never an accident. It typically starts as imagination, becomes a dream, stimulates a goal, grows into a plan of action, which then inevitably meets with opportunity. Don't get stuck along the way. Okay, 
let's let me just I want to go through some principles real quickly here. How do you make yourself somebody that people come to for advice? Now I get a lot of questions about this. You know, how did I become a coach? Dan, can I be a coach? Well, my question back to people who say, Dan, can I be a coach? Always is, are people coming to you now asking for your advice and opinion? If they are, then we can probably shape who you are, what you're doing, what you're offering as a coach and do that pretty easily. If nobody is coming to you asking you for your advice and opinion, then I suggest you find something else to do. It's not just a matter of learning how to do it. It grows out of already being a coach, already filling that role in people's lives. I mean, I didn't become a co- I didn't go to school to be a coach. I didn't come out of college with my bachelor's or my master's or doctoral degrees in coaching by just simply as a result of learning how to coach. No, coaching evolved over a process of having more and more people approach me. You know, when I was doing Sunday school classes or doing presentations, people would wait afterwards and say, Dan, what should I do in this situation? What should I do here? So I recognized that I was already coaching. So it was a simple process to kind of frame that into a more professional presentation. This is what I do. This is coaching. So what do you do? How can you be somebody that people approach? And, and if how do you, can you become someone that people ask for advice? So I think if you're an author, a speaker, a salesperson, counselor, parent, these are all some tips that I just want to throw out here. And I'm going to refine these before we do our next Coaching with Excellence seminar, which is coming up in January. We've got a lot of people registered for that already. would love to, to see you, meet you here. But I, I keep adding content. I keep adding things that I think are valuable to help us all grow as coaches. Today's blog by my friend Michael Hyatt really kind of prompted me to go through and and jot some of these notes down. Mike Hyatt is CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, but Mike has a, an amazing blog. I mean, he blogs every day. Uh, The information is really valuable. If you're interested in writing, coaching, or just running a business, I encourage you to get it. It's michaelhyatt.com. You can find it there, but he talks about the differences in two very prominent, well-known individuals in terms of which one really was a leader, which one he wanted to spend time with and which one he did not. One, again, being a very well-known person, a celebrity, and spending time with that person. The person did nothing but talk about himself. Uh, the other one was Billy Graham, who he was able to meet as a young uh, writer himself, young reporter at 28 years old, talked about how intently Billy Graham listened to him, asked him questions, and it elevated his uh, respect for Billy Graham dramatically because he was such a great, engaging listener. So that's certainly one of the keys. But let me just kind of clarify those a little bit more, just four or five points here. Number one is that be present. Don't be distracted. Don't be thinking about what else you have to do when somebody's talking to you. If you really are talking to somebody, be focused on who they are, what they're saying. Don't, you know, gee, divert your eyes across the room to somebody that may be more important, or you get a a text message that comes in, you glance down at that, you're looking at that, looking over the person's shoulder. Those are horrible things to do. I had somebody recently I was talking to uh, who, who said, Dan, there are two people in the world who make me feel like they're totally listening, like I'm the only person in the room when I'm talking to them. He says, one is the mayor of our city. He said, the other one is you, 
Dan Miller. And I thought, well, that's interesting because that's not really something that just comes naturally for me because I always do have my mind race and I am always thinking about things. I was told one time when I was I evaluated myself and they told me that I have you know, a lot of the characteristics of ADD, they said, whatever you do, never have a window where you can see it when you're coaching somebody because I'll be too distracted. Well, it's hilarious because I've always positioned my coaching offices in ways where I can see out the window, see out the door, and I notice all kinds of things because my mind's going a whole lot faster than the person's talking. Now, I hope that doesn't show. And what this gentleman was telling me, you you really pay attention. That's something that I specifically focus on doing. So I am 100% present and focused on a person you will elevate your status as a coach dramatically if you do that and that alone. Now, number two, then, in addition to being focused and being present, number two, acknowledge where the person is. Don't quickly say, I don't feel that way. Do this, do that. Rather, acknowledge it. You know, I mean, it takes a little bit for somebody to kind of get a hold of where they are and what they're going to move to, but acknowledge where they are. Don't immediately try to just change them or give them advice. Now, this is kind of that gray area between being a counselor where you listen empathetically, you know, for six years or whatever, and being a coach where, yes, you do need to step in and help them change their behavior and get different results. But don't do that too quickly or they'll feel like you didn't really listen. You don't really care about where they are, the pain they're feeling, the frustration, whatever it happens to be. So acknowledge where they are. The number three, ask intelligent questions. Get them to think. Get them to feel and explore. This is uh, the Socratic method. We learn through discourse. I mean, I've always been a proponent of the European model of education because in America, we just simply teach. So you just hear the teacher talking. In the European model of study, there's dialogue back and forth. We learn from dialogue. As a coach or somebody who's going to give advice, you can help somebody dramatically by getting them to think, to talk. They ultimately are going to come up with their own solutions, but help them by just simply asking good questions. Uh, number four, and what people really want is not an answer. I mean, it's easy for anybody to give an answer. This is sometimes something that is irritating to wives where husbands just too quickly give a solution when what they really want, they just want somebody to listen to them. They want somebody to hear about how their day went and how gee, they, you know, got pulled over in traffic because they were going five miles over the speed limit or whatever. It's not, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't, no, it's listen, listen to them. And, and a lot of what people are looking for is not just a a quick answer, just a right or wrong. They want perspective. They want to help broaden what they're able to see. I mean, that's one of my biggest goals as a coach, especially when I work with people who have a lot of professional training, physicians, dentists, attorneys, pastors. They tend to develop blinders for what they see as options. They see things very narrowly. You would think that more education's broadened their horizons, and in many ways, it does the opposite. So when I talk to a dentist who's used to making $300,000 a year, but the only way he knows how to keep that income going is to get, you know, 30 more people in a chair this week. 
He has no freedom to go watch his little boy's soccer game. And if he takes two days vacation, his income stops instantly. So when I help somebody like that start to think about residual income, what is it that you have as intellectual property that we could package and leverage in some way that would create income for you when you're not in the office or while you're sleeping or while you're sitting on the beach? For some of these people, it's mind boggling just to help somebody help them broaden their perspective on what the possibilities are. Once you help broaden their perspective, then again, it helps them see they really are in the driver's seat. They're not trapped. And with that, they can often see and then choose the best solution. Now, number five, then, if it really does come down, they're asking your advice, go ahead and give it to them. I mean, I I love being a coach in that way. So if it really comes down to that and they say, you know, what would you do? I mean, when you think about my buddy Dave Ramsey and what he does, you know, he goes through this whole process that we're talking about here in a 45 second interaction with somebody on the phone and he gets right to it and he always tells people, if I were you, this is what I would do. If I were in your situation, this is what I would do. And that's how he frames most of the advice that he gives. So don't be afraid to do that. I mean, I've tried over the years at times to have professionally trained counselors come in and help with my overload of coaching. It's never worked well. Counselors are used to just that empathetic listening. And I would have people come in who are used to hearing me talk and used to my style. And I put them with a counselor for, you know, two hours and they come out scratching their head and say, you know, what the heck am I supposed to do now? Because a person never told them anything. So don't be afraid to, when it comes right down to it, go ahead and give your advice. I'll formalize that. I'll go through that and kind of work on that. I'll massage that again before our next Coaching with Excellence event. But uh, just uh, prompted my thinking this morning when I saw Michael Hyatt's blog about good and poor listeners. And why, how do you make some yourself somebody that people seek out for advice and coaching? And it's pretty easy to do that because these are skills that most people do not have. I mean, most people, especially if they have had any little level of success at all, They are not good listeners. They don't pay attention to one person specifically. They very quickly are diverted to somebody else who may be more important. And I've made it a point over the years, if it's the janitor I'm talking to, then be fully focused on the janitor, even if Donald Trump rubs elbows with me as he's walking by. And not that that's ever happened, incidentally, but it might. Well, Danny says, Dan, I wrote a point-of-sale program for my small business that is used for tracking purchases and inventory. I would like to market it to others. What protection would I need for liability when marketing software like this? What I would encourage you to do is don't worry about liability. Go ahead and sell a million dollars worth of your software program. Sell a million dollars. Go ahead and just make that a benchmark. When you've sold a million dollars worth, then maybe you're on the radar enough or you can come back and revisit this. But this issue of having to get liability protection before you get out there in the game stops a whole lot of people from ever getting in the game. Don't do that. Here, here's another one, and then I'll expand a little bit more. Owen says, Dan, I'm working on, a, on creating a number of information-based products that may or may not be accompanied by a mobile application. For example, a reminder application on how to keep your wife's needs in top on top of mind positioning, along with a set of docs and CDs and finding your wife's love language. Okay, that's a lot of information complicated. Here's the question. When do I need product liability insurance if someone tries to sue me that I caused a problem in their marriage? You don't. 
don't waste your time. It would be terribly complicated to try to get product liability insurance for what you're talking about. Now, is there product liability insurance, you know, if you buy a new set of steak knives? Yeah, sure. There are some obvious places where product liability insurance is necessary. You know, toy manufacturers are confronted with this garbage all the time, and it's there. If you talk to an insurance, let let me just take my position as an author, because it relates to both of these. I write books, and I tell people, if you really create a plan of action, you can do this. Boom, boom, boom. 48 days is enough time. If you really create a plan of action, you can move out of a job that you hate into one that you really love or start your own business or whatever. Theoretically, is there the potential there for liability like we're talking about here? Absolutely. I mean, what if somebody takes reads 48 days to the work you love and they say, geez, I know my job stinks. I don't want to be here. They quit their job. Six months later, they're depressed because they're broke and they go off and jump off a bridge. And a widow says, well, I'm going to sue that sucker Dan Meller for the information he put into my non-thinking husband's head, caused him to do all those things. I mean, could you do go down that rabbit trail? Yeah, absolutely. Do I lay awake at night thinking about that? Not a chance. Have I ever, in 25 years of doing this, been confronted with anything remotely like that? No, I haven't. And I, I think that's significant. I'm not going to spend my time on something that has a one in a million chance of ever occurring. And, and if I go to insurance providers, and I've had these conversations certainly over the years, but if I go to an insurance provider and say, I want liability protection so that my writing is protected, I mean, insurance companies won't touch that with a 10-foot pole. They don't know how to frame it. Yes, they think it's an issue, but they don't know how to uh, arrange that. I mean, even, even as coaches, we can't get the kind of insurance. You know, attorneys have errors and omissions insurance. Even counselors have protection so that if in a counseling relationship, somebody does something stupid or self-destructive or destructive to others or whatever, they're protected because of that client, um, you know, professional relationship. I mean, there is insurance, but there isn't for coaches. Now, it's being looked at and eventually there'll be that. But don't keep that from stopping you from becoming a coach. I've been coaching for a very long time. I don't have insurance that protects me in the way that we're talking about here. I mean, this backs into the whole idea of like patents. You know, people have a great idea, but they're afraid to ever do anything because they think they need a patent on it. No, just get out there and do it. Get in the game. We can figure out these other issues as you go along. Now, I don't mean to seem just... um, you know, frivolous about some of these things that could be real issues. And, you know, is there a potential? Yeah. But if you're really concerned about, you know, somebody suing you because you ran into them with your car, you'd never leave the house. I mean, the safest thing to do is don't leave the house this morning. I mean, don't risk going to work because something may happen where you could get sued. So we can back ourselves into a corner and become totally incapacitated, totally inactive. And obviously that's not where you're going to find me encouraging you to, to go at all. Well, let me move on. Robert says, Dan, I've been thinking a lot and wondering my goal is to create a system that I can play a, a little role in, but what happens if I'm not able to generate enough business to allow me to hire contract workers? I would be stuck doing all the work. Should I be prepared to do it all? 
I'm going off the thought that an employee's efforts should generate three times what I pay them. But if I'm not generating enough revenue to justify this, then I can't hire anyone. Are there steps I can take to avoid creating another job for myself? For example, if I have a lawn service, but I don't have enough clients to justify paying an employee, I'll be stuck performing the duties myself. Well, again, this is something you that I hope doesn't keep you from starting. If you start a lawn mowing business, it would be foolish for you to hire six people on day one before you have a customer. I mean, that would kill your business. So yes, I think you need to be prepared to do it all in most all businesses that we talk about to start with that. But if you have done projections, if you are effective at the sales and marketing part, so you now generate 60 customers for your lawn mowing service where you can't do it all yourself physically, then it merits bringing in some other people that can help you do that. I mean, that's a great place to be. I would encourage you to read The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Now, there's several... There's several modifications, revisions, updates of that. Just choose the one that you think is most pertinent. It doesn't even matter if you get a copy of the original one, just the original e-myth. That's fine because he talks about this. A lot of times people go in business for themselves and they realize that all they've done is created a job for themselves. I mean, even people who get franchises often are dismayed by that because they thought they were going to be some uh, very important business person. And six months into it, they realize all they did was buy a job for themselves in having a franchise. So if you get a subway and you aren't able to leverage that and get a couple more, you probably just uh, bought yourself a job and that's okay. But if you really want to have a business, you know, you have to understand how to move from being self-employed to having a business Now, if you want more clarification on that, Robert Kiyosaki's material, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, kind of walks you through that, where the first move out of being an employee usually is being self-employed. So if you move out of having a job to having your own little business, so you've got a window washing business, yes, now you're self-employed. But you don't really have a business because a business implies that it creates income even if you're not there. So if you are just simply self-employed and you could be at a bookkeeper or an accountant or an attorney or a human resource person. I mean, there's all kinds of the graphic design person where you just simply are self-employed. Nothing wrong with that at all, but be realistic about what it is. It may not be a real business. It's just being self-employed. Well, golly, I can, now I talk about in, in no more dreaded Mondays. I talk about being an eaglepreneur. If we say entrepreneur, it, kind of implies that you want to be the next Sam Walton, you know, with Walmart or Bill Gates with Microsoft or Henry Ford or whatever, where you're going to grow an idea. And, you know, three years from now, you're going to have 20 employees and you're going to be just sitting in a nice clean office, you know, just managing the, the workflow that goes through. I mean, and that may be true or may not, but a lot of people don't want that. They don't want to manage people and have inventory employees and all of that. They just want to work for themselves. They're what I would call an ecopreneur and totally fine to do that. Uh, there are other modifications obviously on that. And you've heard me talk about that a lot. I mean, I, I don't want to manage, I'm not effective at managing people, but I have people in place that are responsible for certain areas of my business 
They're self-employed. They're independent contractors. I don't manage them. It's more an idea. I'm a pretty good leader, but I'm a terrible manager. So I like to come up with great ideas, say, hey, why don't we do this? But then once people kind of catch a hold of what we want to accomplish, I expect them to figure out how to do it and knock it out of the park without me having to hold their hand in doing it. So I've got kind of a, a blending of what I'm talking about. I have a pretty significant size business in terms of revenue generated because of all the things that we're doing, but I have zero employees. So I'm still that solo entrepreneur or eaglepreneur. But I've developed systems that do create income while I'm sleeping, while I'm spending time with the grandkids and so on. And you can do the same. Well, let's see. John says, uh, Dan, I've developed or I have several small business ideas, but I'm at a loss as to how to act on them. Should I start with the smallest and least time consuming? I have a full time job and limited funds. My ideas are vocal coaching, administrative office efficiency consulting, and a mobile coffee shop. Well, the, the first two that you talk about would require no startup cost, no office inventory or employees, vocal coaching, administrative office efficiency consulting. You don't really need anything very complicated to start those. Uh, now, I don't encourage you to start all three because they're very different. There's nothing to really connect them. See, if you're going to be an author and a speaker and a coach and develop audio products, I mean, those we can put in the same cup under the same umbrella. But when you're going to be vocal coaching, administrative office, efficiency consulting, mobile coffee shop, those are really unconnected. So I think there, yeah, you do need to choose one, start with one and grow it into a significant income stream. When I talk about multiple income streams, I'm not talking about things that are totally unconnected. And I've been guilty of this in the past. I mean, one time I had a health and fitness center. I had an auto accessories business. I was teaching part-time, consulting, speaking. But I would find myself, you know, laying on my back, finishing a cruise installation on a new Honda for the Honda dealer that was due back by 530 realized I was pushing the time clock really closely and I was supposed to be teaching a class at six o'clock well those are unconnected I had to change hats literally in that situation but that doesn't work well to have things that are totally unconnected. So I think if you're going to have multiple streams of income, they ought to be connected. That's why I have seven, but they fit together in a Venn diagram. So my writing, coaching, speaking, product development, affiliate interaction we do, those they're all they all connect. Activity in any one fuels activity in the next one. I would encourage you to go that direction if you are in fact, you know, going to try to develop multiple streams of income. So if you're going to have a mobile, a mobile coffee shop, then you may do that, you know, during the week, you may be available for parties and special events on the weekend. You may have your own line of imported coffee that you supply as a distributor to other people who are selling coffee. You know, so you do those kind of things under one business model and leverage your, what you're doing. Rob says, Dan, I'm a voracious reader. And a fast reader. What jobs would suit me well? I was told proofreader, editor, librarian. Any suggestions for a guy with these qualities? I noticed a long time ago the advantage this gives me at my jobs. Thanks. I would suggest that you use your reading skills, Rob, to become an expert in some area. Then create your own printed products. 
And see, I, I don't think that your ability to read quickly. I, I read, I'm a voracious reader as well. I'll hit 70 books this year and probably more since we still have a couple of weeks left. Um, but, but I would never be interested in positioning myself as a proofreader or a librarian or an editor. I mean, those, for the most part, I mean, those people make peanuts because it's so easy to find people with those skills. Those are not skills that command a big return. Uh, they aren't skills that uh, are held in high value. But if you read a lot, then you ought, to, you ought to be increasing your own knowledge on something. So read three or four books on a particular subject. Become an expert in that. You can do an assimilation or a compilation of some of the information that you now have. Add to it your own, and all of a sudden, you have a product that you can sell. There's way more leverage in that than just being a proofreader or an editor. You know, teaching, even teaching other people how to read and comprehend quickly would be a better focus than be a reading coach rather than just being an editor or a proofreader. Boy, I'm not going to have to move quickly here, grab a couple more. Let me scan a couple here. Well, Raven says, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. This is from Los Angeles, California. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, but I need some sort of job in order to finance a business. I'm in two different schools, one for fashion, one online to get my MBA. I'm also studying for a license to work with imports, and I write a fashion blog in my spare time. Any advice? Well, you present kind of a catch-22, because if you need to go get a job in order to finance a business, getting a job is going to require a learning curve. There's no question about it. Um. That's going to slow down the process of growing your own business. We have to be realistic about that. If you have a business, if you, if you are getting a job to finance a business, the implication is real clear. You don't really expect the business to make significant money. Why would you start a business like that? If you don't believe the business is going to be an out-of-the-park success financially, why would you waste your time doing that? Now, I recognize, you know, if you want to do a nonprofit or humanitarian thing, there may be some exceptions to that. But in, for the most part, and everything I see in your question indicates that you want to get into business so you can make money. If you have a business outlined, you know your skills, what value you bring to the table, you better believe that the business is going to make way more money than you could possibly ever make in a job. So I'm not sure why you think that you have to go get a job to finance your business. It implies you don't really believe your business is going to be successful. I would say go to the business, make the business your primary focus, ramp it up quickly. Don't have it be a long, drawn-out process. I mean, with most businesses, even if it's something on the Internet and if you're an unknown, I mean, I would hope that within three to six months, you are at a place where you're making more money than you could possibly make in a job. So the question is then, do you need a job to support yourself or back you up somehow in that short period of time? Well, perhaps. So, I mean, get a job with UPS delivering Christmas packages in that period of time or go back and help the guy who's starting a lawn mowing uh, job for the first three months in the early part of spring when people are setting out new plants and to do something where there's not a long learning curve or a real, uh, a real significant investment in that business or their training time for you. So it is something you can get in and out of quickly. All right, let me grab one more. Dan, I have an opportunity 
two. This comes from um, Robbie. Dan, I have an opportunity to work for a small startup company from my home that will give me time to work on my own business. I would be doing sales, mostly cold calls by phone. I have very little sales experience, but want to try this. Where can I learn how to be a great salesperson or can I learn that? Yes, you can. Uh, Selling well is learned. It's not something you're born with. I mean, you, you would, we hear people talk about, you know, he's just a born salesperson. Yeah, in, it implies that you're somebody that talks to others re, uh, easily, that you relate easily, that you establish rapport and trust with others quickly. I mean, that's cool. But even though those are things that you learn to do, and that, those are not things that most people uh, find that are just part of their DNA. They're things you learn to do. So yes, you can learn, but you also ought to match the selling model with what you know about yourself. So if you've done the 48 days personality profile as an example, and it shows that you are a high S, so you're very relational, you like systems, methods, of operation, that is not a personality profile that's going to adapt well to selling cars or jewelry or furniture, where for the most part, those are just one-time encounters. Boom. You need to be a different kind of personality for that, but that would relate well to you know selling insurance or annuities or um, selling MRI machines or $100,000 printing presses, where there's a relationship established and it takes place over a period of time. So make sure the sales model fits what you know about yourself. Now, what I would encourage you to do is go to Mars Coaching. That's M-A-R-R-S coaching.com. That's Pierce Mars site. Go there and look at what, it, get his free weekly sales update. I mean, there's all kinds of, there's a group that he's got on 48days.net where you can get involved. So yes, you can very quickly become good at selling if you're realistic about what the sales model requires and if that does in fact fit you. Boy, we are out of time. I took too much time at the front end. I've got a whole lot of questions here. I'll try to squeeze those into upcoming podcasts so we stay current on some of the important things that you are asking. Thank you so much for being part of this 48 Days community. I really do value your involvement, the time that you take each week to listen to the podcast, the feedback that I get. I take that very seriously. That's what makes it worthwhile for me to do. This is not just a one-way Uh, teaching model. This is uh, interacting with you. I interact all week long uh, to get the information that I think is valuable to feed back in the podcast in ways that I hope help a lot of you uh, leverage what you're doing to make your work more effective, more productive as well. Well, there we go. That famous song coming up lets us know we're at the tail end of the podcast, taking care of business. Hey, delighted to have that established a little more officially at this point and I think that is a good tie-in for the 48 days podcast so trust that you're having a wonderful week that you really are either finding or creating work that is meaningful purposeful fulfilling and profitable so get out there work joyfully live fully go make a difference today